You're listening to TIP. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this Wednesday's release of the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. This episode is brought to you by River, the place that I personally go to securely invest in Bitcoin with confidence and with zero fees. On this week's conversation, I have back Bitcoin mining expert Harry Suttuk to talk about some of the more interesting topics currently being discussed. We get into an interesting conversation about high fees and how some entities are getting low fee transactions included into the blockchain, even though the market rate is much higher. Even though this might be happening, Harry shares his thoughts on whether this should be a concern or not for the overall decentralization and health of the network. Additionally, we talk about nuclear power, what it might mean for the Bitcoin mining sector, and much more. So with that, here's my conversation with the thoughtful Harry Suttick. You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investors Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm here with Harry Suttuk, uh back again. Excited to have this chat with you. I got to spend a little time with you last week. So uh, excited to kind of touch basis on the podcast. Yeah, Preston, always, always great to be back. Always great to see you at Bitcoin Park. We had historically aggressive snow weather last <laughs> week, right in time to host 200 people. You know, just how, just how we drew it up. Speaking but, of no, everybody, speaking everybody of which, it. there's snow on the ground at Bitcoin Park in Nashville, mm-hmm. and uh, I walk up. It's in the evening, and there's three people sitting in a hot tub out in the front yard of Bitcoin Park, and the hot tub is being heated by mining rigs. They're making you guys are there sitting there making money while people are practically sitting there on the street in a hot tub. So. <laughs> This is crazy, right? The, the state of our network is strong. We had an, an incredible Bitcoiner named Schnitzel who brought his ASIC hot tub to Nashville and he ran it all week. I know a bunch of guys got in. I mean, it, it's pretty insane when you think about the application. Now, this is where I want to start the conversation. From your experience as a professional miner and somebody who's dealt with this infrastructure and this hardware for as long as you have, just because it's possible doesn't mean that it's uh, likely at scale or, or volume. So I'm curious to hear your point of view on this particular type thing evolving from here. Like, are we five years out, ten years out from this being something that we're that's seen more commonly? Walk us through what, what you what you think about this. I think it, it continues down this kind of trend of barbell ification across mining mm-hmm. where you either need to be a really scaled operator to achieve you know industrial economics mm-hmm. or you need to have a differentiated use case for the heat or for the natural output that a mining machine um, generates and so i think there's a ton of folks who are going to put five six a six in their house and replace their hot water heater they're going to replace their the way that they heat their homes, it's going to replace, you know, propane or nat gas in some instances for household heating. So I think those types of micro use cases are probably in the earliest of days. The guys at Futurebit are doing it with their space heater. Denver Bitcoin just heats his whole house. He did his own ductwork for it. And then there's, you know, there's folks who are, re, you know, refitting, you know, their boiler basically to run off of the output from ASICs. So you know, I think we're we're just at the beginning of sort of the the tinkering phase for this long tail of home usage, and we only need to get to a few hundred thousand households to represent a really serious portion uh, of the network. So I think the road towards additional household level decentralization is really interesting, but I also think that we're not going to see any slowing in the growth of the mega site as well. You know, when I'm thinking of how does this actually work itself into everyday use, it, it almost seems like you, you have all these apartment buildings that are constantly going up all over the country. Is somebody who's building these things, does it start to become part of just the common build or the common infrastructure of an apartment building where you have, say, 40 people renting off of you, you're providing the, the hot water or the heat into the building 
because there's some type of mining set up because it's advantageous for the the person who's who's renting out this property because then you're able to do it at scale do you see that kind of emerging first or do you see these onesies and twosies of people doing this at their house because the issue is is more on the service side right like you need to have a little bit of technical you need a lot of technical competence to service it to just handle the complexity of it all so is is that how this gets going or walk us through kind of your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think there's a number of different historical analogies that that make sense, right? The internet was really a household toy early on, right? If you go to the, you know, whether it was the phone freaking era or the um, build your own computer era, these are hobbyists who are going to tinker sort of at the home level and they're going to be the ones that drive you know, round one of innovation, right? This is how Apple got started. This is how a lot of the the personal computing revolution got started in, in the 70s and 80s. So I think we're going to see that. Growing up, my dad's no technologist, but he sure knew how to make the router and the dial-up work. And so I think that, you know, mining represents a kind of a similar level of competence to that. And then, you know, once you graduate, you know, do you service your own HVAC? At this point, no. So I think there's a layer of service providers that'll spin up around this idea as well. And it's going to be the same way that you hire an electrician or a plumber um, or an HVAC you know, service. You're going to start to see folks who say, okay, well, you know, I'm an HVAC service with ASIC integration and I'm adding that to, you know, to my own competitive differentiation. But you know, this, is, this is what's so beautiful about mining is that it's a infrastructure-enabled and Bitcoin-enabled revenue stream or cost saving stream, you know, so if you say, all right, I'm going to go spend 25 cents a kilowatt hour to heat my house. Well, if I strap a miner on that, maybe I'm dropping that to 10 or 15 cents net of the Bitcoin reward. Anytime there's an opportunity to execute against those types of cost savings, I think industry springs up around it. So we're going to see growth on, you know, the home use case at the tinkerer level. I think we'll see some of call it, let's call it micro industrial, um, which I would put it like anything less than 100 ASICs is kind of micro industrial. And I think, you know, that's, that's plenty to heat houses or, or maybe a multifamily. That's all kind of well within scope. And then you look at, at some of these firms that do contract industrial scale servicing. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't they just strap a truck fleet onto their business? And when they're underbooked at sort of the industrial scale, go send the guys out. I was involved in a business, which was a, an airline maintenance business years and years ago. And they did exactly that. They had two hangars where they would do the full-blown inspection. That was a big ticket item. You know, you take the plane out of service for four or eight weeks. But then there was a huge, it was called AOG, air on ground servicing business. And that was a fleet of 15 trucks with mechanics in them. And, and they would be dispatchable across a region. So I don't see why you wouldn't have a similar kind of maintenance business model spin up around this idea. But, you know, like with everything in mining, you know, there's two key drivers, which is the CapEx and the OpEx. The CapEx is the ASICs and the infrastructure. The OpEx is the electricity and the servicing. And so I think, you know, folks are going to need to kind of wrap their head around, well, maybe it's a $40,000 heat installation rather than a $10,000 or $20,000 heat installation. But you amortize that, you get some depreciation benefits based on something like that. And so, you know, people have to wrap their head around a little bit of a different cost structure than what they're used to. But the benefits and the sovereign revenue is a huge, huge net benefit once you get your head wrapped around it. Well, when we look at how many people are just highly indebted and don't have the capital for something that's four times the cost of an HVAC, they already struggle with the cost of an HVAC putting it in. And now something is four times more expensive than that. It almost seems like it's going to force this into being a a model where you're you're relying on t- some type of service provider to provide that service just because of that upfront cost that that's going to be there for a majority of market participants. Similar to when Solar City or whatever was rolling out, hey, you it's basically the same cost and and the the cost to put this in is you get it back after 20, 30 years or whatever it was. But I think in this scenario, the, the return on the upfront cost is way faster compared to solar. 
it almost seems like that's what's going to have to kind of be the model moving forward because most households aren't going to have the upfront cost. Is, is that a correct assumption or the way to look at it? I think that's reasonable. And, and I think, you know, the important piece, at least the lessons that I learned were the operating model you deploy for one unit, 10 units, 100 units, 1,000 units, 10,000 units. Those are almost independent businesses, mm. right? You've got to rebuild your whole operating system. You know, if you, if you think of like, a, like an SOP document, like imagine that you and I are going to write a standard operating procedure for each of those sets of scale you know, you'd almost have a completely different document for each one of them. You know, how do you manage network? How do you manage power? How do you manage, you know, heat and sound and, you know, all the different components that go into a mining installation, each of those levels of scale. So every time you add a zero, it's almost an entirely different operating model. So I think, what do you do with one unit? What do you do with 10 units? That's pretty similar. But what do you do with a hundred units? And what do you do with a thousand units? Totally different. I would not anticipate an owner operator taking on a thousand units. I think they can totally take on one unit. I think they can totally take on 10 units. You know, it, you know, if you, if you had access to YouTube, you can figure out 10 units, a hundred units. That's a lot of work. And at a thousand units, you're hiring and, and staffing that out. I think this is going to take longer than many of us suspect or that some might suspect because at the core piece of this, you still have an education burden that's associated with the underlying coins that are being mined because your majority of your populace is just looking at this and be like, these people are crazy. These magic internet money that they're mining with this heating unit, this good, and they're just not there. Like they, they look at all of it still to be very super speculative and they're not going to want to change out an HVAC on this premise that there's money that can be made out of something that's mining it. I think you just, we might have to go through a whole nother cycle before people even begin to kind of go down that path of this is very real. This thing's staying around for a very long time. I'm assuming you, you agree with that, Harry? Yeah. And again, I think that ties directly into this CapEx idea that another cycle from now, being able to put 10 or 100 units online, you can go a generation older, you can get them for a lot more kind of cost-effective pricing per unit. The value is that you're monetizing the energy. Mm -hmm. You don't need best-in-class efficiency in order to achieve that. So I think you know the ability to go down market or into the used market on those units unlocks a whole other layer of this business model just because you're not out of pocket mm -hmm. so significantly. You know, we saw this with the S9s in 2020. You know, they basically traded for scrap value. They traded for a dollar or two a terahash. So I think, you know, if you're able, if you, if you want to do this in your multifamily, doing it at the absolute depth of the bear on a previous generation machine where, you know, the process heat and the little bit of Bitcoin, you know, makes sense, don't overspend on a top of the line unit and kind of get your hands dirty with the first version. And then if you're like, you know, this is incredible and I've got a really, really good power cost, you know, then you might say, all right, the CapEx is justifiable. But I think in terms of just getting from, from sort of zero to one, going mid-market, going older gen, and then, you know, making the acquisition of the units in sort of the most distressed time period, that's a reasonable recipe for how to make something like this work. Yeah. Hey, you've been with uh, Grid for quite a while now, and they went public. They have a public listing. We sure did. It'll be it'll be five years next month. Wow! If you can believe it. Wow. Yeah, we listed on CBOE Canada. Our ticker is GRDI, but uh, we're just we're just thrilled to be in kind of the next phase of growth. Yeah. There's a lot of growth that we have planned, and all of that stuff gets you know facilitated by a role in the public markets. When I think about mining, like I think one of the the biggest competitive moats you can have is just your relationship with your government at the local level combined with well really kind of three main things that combined with just really cheap energy cost, right? And then the third thing I would say is just operational excellence. Is there something else that you would quantify in there as being setting a mining company apart from others other than those three I think it's sort of two sides of the same coin, but it's access to capital and capital efficiency. If you bought $100 S19s at the top of last cycle, 
those are really hard to ROI. You mm-hmm. bought so far ahead of what they're able to produce that it's tricky. So I would say, you know, the same way that if you're a hedge fund, you and you leg into, you know, Bitcoin or ETF Bitcoin, you know, you're assigned a cost basis. I think of miners assigning themselves a cost basis for their ASICs and generating an internal rate of return against that cost basis is a key idea. You know, so I, I always think like they're the, the legs of the stool in a mining business and you, you can screw up one, you really can't screw up two are, are exactly what you said, which is, you know, power cost, operating experience, capital efficiency, and then, you know, sort of jurisdictional risk or jurisdictional quality. You know, those are all, those are all things that matter a lot. You know, the things we've been incredibly thoughtful over the last five years around. But the opportunity in mining, I, I think, is just kind of scratching the surface of the mainstream, even though other than exchanges, I think the mining business is sort of the other place in Bitcoin land that's demonstrated an opportunity to achieve actual scale. Similar to just mining raw commodities, one of the big advantages you get by being a public listed company is access to liquidity on demand effectively. And you can take advantage of the, the cycles in commodities. So when the underlying that, that you're, you know, you're mining is ripping, a great time to issue some more common stock, maybe squat on the funds that you raise until the, the market corrects. And then you can deploy that capital into more equipment. In this case, it would be mining rigs at a, at a much cheaper price. But you have to be patient and you have to really deeply understand those cycles and uh, not get sucked in with the exuberance and the speculative animal spirits that kind of happen through these things. I'm assuming you agree with this, but in application, <laughs> I guess is, is where my real question is, is that how, like, in your opinion, really great operators in this space look at this and are they actually able to put it into practice? Yeah, I think the commodity production business gives companies an opportunity to be very pro-cyclical on their earnings mm-hmm. and to be very counter-cyclical on their asset acquisition approach, which means that you're always kind of, you can be pro-growth on both a cyclical basis and a counter-cyclical basis. And, and that's exciting as an industry. You know, I think for the most part, there's a little bit of divergence across business models, whether hosting provider, hosting client, vertically integrated, own the racks, you know, there's nuance across all of that. I think the market hasn't quite figured out that miners aren't just a, a Bitcoin beta trade. They're maybe a hash price beta trade plus differentiated operating capabilities. So, you know, I think we're still kind of early days in, you know, equity analyst coverage and deeper understanding of miner A versus B versus C. But I think you're right. Like at the end of the day, it's it's a capital formation and capital deployment business. And so Who's forming what type of capital? What does that mean on a cost of capital basis? And then what are they deploying it into? And, and what kind of future cash flows or future SaaS flows can those businesses reasonably expect? Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. So one of the most common questions I get from family and friends is, Preston, where do you buy your Bitcoin from personally? And the answer is really simple. I buy it on river.com. Not only can you easily buy Bitcoin with zero fees on recurring orders, you can have peace of mind knowing Bitcoin on River is held one-to-one in multi-sig cold storage, all while being fully licensed and regulated in the U.S. Plus, their relationship managers are U.S.-based and available by phone for you or your business. Additionally, River has built their own infrastructure from the ground up, which means they don't rely on third parties to function like the other Bitcoin exchanges. River also created a new feature not found anywhere else called River Link. It allows you to send Bitcoin over a text message to easily orange pill your family, pay a friend for dinner, or send a gift. There's absolutely a new standard in Bitcoin and River is setting it. So go to river.com slash fundamentals and get up to $100 free when you sign up and buy Bitcoin. That's river.com slash fundamentals. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. 
Meka is an AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. I think that it's when I compare a private miner versus a public miner, the process to go through raising capital is just so much different than what a public miner can just issue more stock. I mean, they can and say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna issue twenty five percent more shares outstanding than we currently have. The the price is obviously ripping because it's correlated to the underlying, and then they can just kind of really squat on that cash and that buying that potential energy that they're basically tapping into for when there's a correction. I would think on the private equity side, like going through that process to raise a similar amount would be just brutal. And, and you don't really have total control over that timing. A lot of hooks. There's a lot. And, there, and there's a lot of hooks. I think anytime you sign up for a deal in the private markets that has a real kind of duration lock on it, you know, that private equity is looking to, to liquidate the asset in three to five years and, you know, puts all this kind of, you know, not that in the public markets, there isn't kind of quarterly earning pressure and, and other kinds of pressure. But at the end of the day, I think Pubco guys are, are looking to earn the trust and respect of long-term shareholders mm-hmm. and, you know, judiciously issue stock and judiciously acquire assets in order to in order to kind of build a compounding lever on these businesses that outpaces you know bitcoin price outpaces difficulty and outpaces the having because there there are forces that work against you sort of in a bitcoin native way as well so you know these are all things you know i spend an enormous amount of time thinking about when we made the decision that we wanted to be a public company it was really to be able to put all of the different levers you know on the table and available to us across the board because the opportunity is so broad and so exciting and the integrations with the energy systems that are out there is, is so new that we wanted to put every opportunity on the table for us and i think you know we've seen a lot of folks take different kind of angles at it you know many with an enormous amount of success and and so i think it's a sector that is in its earliest days now i joke is half-heartedly that like we're kind of ending the Bitcoin mining level one phase uh, with this having, and I think you know Bitcoin level two is coming next, and that definitely applies to the miners because you know the stuff that that was you know outside successful in the previous cycle, you know we're going to need new tricks up our sleeve in order to continue to differentiate. What do you mean by that? What, when you say we're going to need more tricks? Well, so I think there's been an, an operating model, which is put as much hash rate online as humanly possible. No one's looking at, at a, a, across a number of the different guys of, around dilution and capital destruction. So there, there's really been sort of an interesting relationship between some capital destruction that's happened, but equity value growth. So if I issue you know a billion dollars in stock, does my stock go up more than a billion dollars? In many cases, yes, not in every case. You know, we saw the sort of ASIC finance uh, loan book explode across all of the underwriters. That all happened, you know, in the prior cycle. So I think there's a deeper respect for the volatility across the mining space on the capital side. And I think that the, the entire mining space was kind of on easy mode. The previous having, you know, even though there were incredibly difficult periods, enormously deep drawdowns, you know, hash price was not uh, static whatsoever, but we got a, a lot of kind of fee relief heading into the end of 2023 and, and now into 2024. So 
you know, I think with the having coming, the cost of power is going to come sharply into focus and the multiple on invested capital is going to be something that all the miners are going to have a deeper focus on in the coming years than they did maybe in the previous years. There's been a ton of talk with Ocean coming on to the, to the scene with their pool. And uh, one of the things that I think is really important that they're talking about is this idea that if you're bringing one rig to the equation, that you should be able to submit a block template. And as long as is your rig found the block, it should be able to put forth that template with, with a certain margin of safety factored in as like a base template. Like if the fees aren't at least 10%, then I don't know if this is how Ocean's going to necessarily... I think they've got like three different things. But I think in, if other pools start operating this way, which I think they should and they need to, I think it'd be better for Bitcoin from a decentralization standpoint if we got more pools to kind of do this. And this is why I'm really happy with Ocean has kind of brought to the attention of everybody in the Yeah, the Overton window is moving. Yeah, yes. For um, sure. Walk us through the perception deep inside of the mining industry as to how they think about this idea of individual miners or rigs being able to put forth a block template. It's a little bit technical. So right now, there's an enormous amount of decentralization across the production of hashes, and there's a pretty limited amount of decentralization across uh, the pools. So right now, the way that the system basically works is that the pool runs software. Typically, it's Bitcoin Core that generates a block template. There's nothing to say that I couldn't run a node and try to you know, do my own block template, though it may not be compatible with the pool. But there's no reason why Bitcoin Core has to be the block template producer. And there's certainly additional optimizations that can be added to that piece of software as well. And so you know, imagine there's a pool that's running a number of full nodes. That's where those templates are getting generated. Then the pool has a mempool associated with those nodes that covers the surface area or the real estate from which the transactions are drawn to map to that block template. You know, let's just say there's 100,000 transactions sitting in the mempool. 2,000 of those put together make the best block with the most fees or 4,000. Or I think right now we're able to get to about 4,200 transactions in a single block. And that process is how we arrive. Oh, I have a crazy dog. That process is how we arrive at the current mining system. Pool has mempool, pulls the 4,200 out of the mempool that are the highest revenue for the miners, and then sends those templates to the miners. Miners perform work against those templates. Miner discovers a compliant block or a found block. You know, I say compliant compliant relative to the template, not compliant, and then submits that block back to the pool. Pool propagates the found block, and then a new round of templates get generated. And what is great about the system, how it's functioned thus far, is it allows for there to be this huge amount of decentralization across hash producers, even if there is not a huge amount of decentralization across block template proposers with sort of this implicit idea that if my pool starts to behave poorly, the switching costs to go from pool A to pool B are, you know, near zero. Even if I were to lose a whole day's worth of revenue or any miner were to lose a whole day's worth of revenue, that's sort of the maximum exposure that you could ever face relative to a pool. So that's, you know, less than a third of a percent of your annual revenue is only ever really at risk. So it's an infinitesimally small amount. So it's important to know that and that the the current kind of good actor sort of Damocles that's hanging over the industry is that the switching costs between pools are very, very, very low. Now, does that mean we're at an optimal state? No. But does it mean that we're at a reasonable local maximum? Yes. So I don't think that there's like significant systemic risk to Bitcoin in any way, shape, or form relative to the, the centralization of mining pools today doesn't mean we don't have an obligation to try to work towards a more perfect union. What the Ocean guys are doing and what, what the Stratum B2 open source project is doing essentially takes the block suggesting function and jams that down to the same level as the hash production function. Now, there's a lot of like network engineering stuff that, that is above my pay grade. 
what around the- latency and are you degrading your competitive uh, quality as a miner by going towards this sort of self-generating model? Is that kind of the argument? Is that, is that really kind of the argument? Like if a person, this stratum V2 that you're talking about, what would be a person who's really opposed to this in mining? What would the argument sound like? It would sound basically like this. Miner A and miner B are both participants in a pool that have pushed the block suggesting function to the miner. Miner A has a great network design and is doing really well. Miner B isn't. And so let's say they're generating 10x a hash per second combined, five and five. Five of those x a hash have a 99.999% competitive parity with the rest of the network, but miner B has 85%, for Mm. instance. Miner A and miner B get paid the same for their pool shares, Mm. even though the likelihood of that pool or a participant in that pool finding the block has degraded. There's nuance there where allowing a low-performing miner on a network basis to equally participate on, on the pool, you know, that pool might find one, one out of 10 fewer blocks mm-hmm. because of them. There's an economic case that there's a performance standard that they would need to introduce in parallel with this type of responsibility. I'm a believer that in any well-organized system, you basically need like counterweighting KPIs. So you know, if I were, a, let's say I'm a credit card company. God help me. I've got two KPIs. One of them is number of new cards issued or number of total credit issued, because that's how you generate money. But number two would be, I'd also want to minimize chargeback instances. Mm. Or you need these counterweighting KPIs. So maybe one is we're going to push the block suggestion layer down to all the miners, but we're also going to have this counterweight, which is that you also need to achieve some latency requirement or you need to come up with some you know shares per new block counterweight so there are ways to do it and there's certainly really really smart engineers who are going to solve it on a technical basis that that i'm not able to but at a conceptual level you know this all feels like it's within the realm of solvable Mm -hmm. the bigger issue is that there's no economics associated with it right now and so miners are you know the most relentlessly capitalists businesses in the world because we know exactly what each unit of our work should deliver on a revenue basis. And, you know, continuing to push complexity down to the individual operator level doesn't get you any more revenue. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you're really asking miners to take an altruistic approach, which is good. We all believe in the long-term value of Bitcoin and and it, it broadens maybe the area under the curve or the useful life or duration that Bitcoin can represent. So there's, there's this software case that the miners really, if every miner staffed their engineering team with two, three, four kind of template engineers, let's mm-hmm. say, that becomes a huge redundant cost across the entire industry. Whereas right now, those are basically offloaded into the service provider level mm-hmm. at the pool. So the pool hires one team and maybe they have 100 clients. Mm-hmm. Those are 100 three, four person engineering teams that don't have to exist. So from a scaled perspective and a SG&A kind of, kind of corporate cost model basis, the way it's designed today is probably advantageous. Now, could you achieve a lot through open source? Could you achieve a lot through, you know, maybe an independent service that does this or a not-for-profit or foundation that does block, you know, template production, you know, maybe that's a happy medium. I've heard proposals, you know, bounce around, around, you know, basically doing a foundation that does all of the template push and, and you basically disintermediate the pool role from the template role and the minor role. And there's actually a third leg to the stool that belongs out there or a few third legs of the stool. But I think to say, well, wouldn't it be great if miners just did this themselves? Like that doesn't really capture the scope of, of what's really being asked. Oh, that helps out a lot. That helps me understand that a lot. And those are some points that I never thought about uh, from their perspective. Help us. So when, when I'm looking at mempool space, mempool.space. Uh, we love mempool. They have, a, they have an awesome new feature there where they're showing what the expected fee was going to be for the block. And you can see it real time there. And then after the block is found, you can see what was actually put in by the, the miner and the pool that you know, found the block. And I'm finding anywhere from like two to maybe 8% of a delta between what was expected from just a pure fee standpoint to what was actually produced. 
explain to us exactly what's happening from a miner and a pool perspective as these numbers are are pretty different. There's a few categories of Delta that I think could be in play. One of them is just like straight up out of band mm-hmm. transactions, mm-hmm. though your favorite ordinal respectors go to a pool and say, hey, please include all of these. We'll pay on the side. It would be great if you'd include them kind of at one sat per V-byte, even though the mempool market is is trading at 200 sats per V-byte. So I think a big piece of the Delta could come from situations like that. And the so other piece- help, help me understand. So they're, they're wanting the lower rate or they've had it in the mempool and they're not able to update it. Walk us through like, why would a miner- entertain this if it's not economically viable for them or that they're making more by bumping their transaction up into the pool? Well, so they, maybe they are paying more. So maybe mm-hmm. they, they propose one SAT per V, but you know, maybe it's hundred transactions. They propose one SAT per V, but on all those transactions, they give them a list of the transactions and they say, all right, this would have generated, I'm using a random number, one Bitcoin in fees. Oh, they, it's a- they pay it's akin to it on the side. Yeah. So they, what they don't want to do is they don't want to show how many they're trying to stuff in there. Almost like an over the counter market where they don't want the, the rest of the, the market. Disney, it's a Disney fast pass. Got it. Yeah. Nobody knows what you paid for your fast pass or your special park mm-hmm. accelerator, mm-hmm. but, but you paid them. And so you walk to the front of the line. Yeah. Got it. It's that kind of thing. So mempool's working on a product, which is basically the sort of the, the open version of that, which is the mempool accelerator, which I think is, is interesting. There, there's also just noise in that data where maybe a pool or two is using a different mempool than mempools using. There is no one mempool. There's just your instance of the mempool. So there's a whole whisper network, which is how all the transactions end up in a mempool. And then maybe the one I'm, you know, right now there's a, there's sort of a norm, but not a hard limit that a mempool is 300 meg. Maybe I'm running a two gigabyte mempool for my pool because I need more visibility into more transactions and I'm seeing other things. And maybe there's a, an RBF or a child pays for parent that's getting included differently in my template production algorithm. Like there's lots of reasons why that data would also be noisy mm-hmm. from mempool to mempool. So I'm hesitant to say, oh, it's all OTC I ban stuff. I don't think that it is, but I think there's just some variability across mempools that the pools are using mempools that the mining pools are using, which attributes you know, back to some of that noise. But there's also definitely out-of-band stuff happening. Mempool themselves facilitate functionally an out-of-band. And it, it's, it's, a, it's visible, but it's out-of-band. F2Pool has a transaction accelerator that they use. So this is going to become more of a Bitcoin norm. Again, thank goodness for Satoshi because the block time and the UTXO model is a huge friction coefficient on like an, an Ethereum style MEV mm-hmm. data play. So I think that, you know, the Ex- risk is that you get into Ex- some of that. Explain that in a lot more detail for people. It's easier to talk about Ethereum because it's, it, it, it's there. It isn't in Bitcoin. So there's an essay that came out several years ago called Ethereum is a dark forest. Then there's another really good thread by Alex B on Twitter. Um, where he basically captured a lot of the evidence of MEV on Ethereum, especially in a proof of stake environment relative to a proof of work environment. So there's a couple of factors that make Ethereum sort of a hotbed for this, right? The first is, is that there's this idea that you're in what's called state, which means if I put, let's say the block is 100 transactions and I do a transaction, I do transaction one, I can then do transactions two through a hundred with the output, the outputs of transaction one. So I can make multiple transactions occur within a single block based on the most, re, you know, the ordering of those. Mm. In Bitcoin, that doesn't work, right? Mm. Because you have this unspent transaction output, the UTXO, that you can only spend a new UTXO. So once the block confirms that your UTXO moved from A to B, then you can start to do something with B to C. Mm-hmm. You can't do these multiple hops. Mm-hmm. And so if you were perhaps doing MEV minor extracted value on Ethereum, you would try to snipe value. Let's say there's a Uniswap smart contract that's, that's the transaction you're doing on Ethereum and you're moving a billion dollars from one side of a trade to another. 
you can do funny business within the same block in that environment. So the person who produces the block has a lot of potential value because there's a lot of economics that are moving inside of that block in real time, basically. And that's what allows for this. So there's, there's much more opportunity for incentive to the block producer than there is just relative to what we, we do in Bitcoin, which is just like a straight up auction for block space. Got it. Got it. Okay. So the halving's coming up. This is always a very big deal. Everybody talks about it. Everyone's got an opinion. I think we have a pretty good idea of what happens after the happening. I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. We're going to go from 6.25 Bitcoin minted <laughs> per block to 3.125. That's right. That's exactly what's going to happen. How, the impacts. Everybody's got to take on whether this is as significant as it used to be. What's your opinion here moving forward? I'm super conflicted. The first is that I love the having, not as a miner, but as a Bitcoiner, mm-hmm. because it is, the, it is the evidence in the world that Bitcoin's monetary policy is functioning as it was written. And so the certainty that we have around Bitcoin, the financial asset, is all a function of the certainty that we have that the monetary policy functions the way we expect. That's how we achieve a 21 million hard cap. It's, you know, it, you know, imagine that we woke up on what is it, the 840,000th block. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of The Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Satoshi shows up and says, no, it's going to stay at 6.25. That, this is your point, right? Exactly, right? <laughs> if, 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 we were to go, if we were to go the other way and we didn't have, it means that Bitcoin doesn't work. The monetary policy didn't work. And so the 21 million hard cap didn't work and it would be incredibly disruptive to all of our expectations around how Bitcoin, the software is supposed to function. So you, you didn't know, even I think you didn't even laugh at my joke, the Satoshi joke. Well, you mean, well, that's what Jamie told me was going to happen. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know? I'm sorry to interrupt. Let's stay on task. Keep going. I, I interrupted you. <laughs> well, but, but, but like, this is why, you know, I think havings are, I think everybody kind of delves into what you're saying, which are, what are the impacts of it? Mm-hmm. But I, I, I come at it always from first principles, which is, this is the edification of Bitcoin's monetary policy. Mm-hmm. And so it is critically important that they go off without a hitch. They have every time previously. The other thing is, and this is just the elegant brilliance that is, that is Satoshi Nakamoto. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but, and I can't attribute to the person who showed me on X.com because I forget to tweet, but the first epoch was 50 Bitcoin per block and 50% of the supply was issued. The second epoch, 25 Bitcoin per block and 25% of the total supply was issued. The third, 12 and a half and 12 and a half percent of the total supply was issued. And so every epoch is the percentage of inflation demonstrated yeah. in how many units per block. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? It's just so elegant. And the mythology continues to grow, mm-hmm. you know, with every, with every little design choice. All right, let's leave that aside. What are all the actual impacts? on people running businesses, on people holding Bitcoin, on price. And the short answer is, is that, you know, miners are going to generate a lot less Bitcoin denominated revenue unless fees rise significantly. I think the amount of net new Bitcoin available to the market is going to go down. So there's a market microstructure argument. I was having this discussion with Jack at Strike and uh, probably a couple of months ago. And we both agree that there's 100% of market microstructure impact and we have no idea how to quantify how big it actually is because you see you know you see a, a a sailor wake up in the morning or an etf wake up in the morning they might buy a month's worth of net new issuance or a year's worth of net new issuance as the case may be as we get further and further out the epochs so i don't know but i think that the impact isn't zero and it obviously isn't everything you know i think like with like with everything around sort of a, a geometric adoption curve, it's just more time in the market. And as you get into the out years, especially on sort of the, the southern hemisphere of the S curve, which I think we're still on, you know, you get you get some of these exponential years. Now, you know, not in terms of price necessarily, but in terms of functionality and user adoption. So it's a huge opportunity to continue to put more Bitcoin into more people's hands and to put stronger freedom tech tools into more people's hands. And that's all incredibly meaningful. But, you know, why, you know, I love the American model meme of green, 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 red. Um, And I love, you know, I love that we sort of have this historical cycle of price appreciating significantly in conjunction with a halving. I have no idea what the chicken or the egg in that is, but it isn't a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how you get these cycles of speculators coming in that then some of them turn into long-term investors and long-term holders. And when we look at where we're at right now in the cycle, we are aggressively being dominated by long-term holders just through what we can see on the on-chain data. I'm just curious as to the potency of the halving at this point and whether that is going to be akin to previous cycles. And I think that I guess I'm hopeful that it is, but but who knows? Who knows whether this is going to be like the last? I suspect it is, though. And this, but this is why I go back to the most important part of the having is the demonstration of the monetary policy. Yeah, I think that's a because that's that. inarguable. Yeah, it's inarguable, right? And why it's and it's a real it's a really big deal. Like we say it, and it's like, well, yeah, of course, that's what it does. But when you think about it, 
there's no person that can step in and say, nope, not this time. I have all of these coins. I'm Michael Saylor. I have all these coins and I don't want it to, to or I want it to not go in half. I want it to uh, be a 90% reduction or whatever, right? No person has that authority, whether you're Satoshi or not. Exactly. It, it, yeah. is, it is the demonstration of the system functioning. Yeah. And yes, I can say, and it. So for, I can say it correctly. For, it's Satoshi, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we know you're smart. <laughs> oh, but, but that, so, you know, I, I, I stay away from the prediction game just because I don't know and, and I don't want to pretend to know. But I do with absolute certainty know that the demonstration of Bitcoin's monetary policy functioning as intended mm-hmm. is what I latch onto the most because otherwise it's painful because, you know, Bitcoin mining revenue goes down in Bitcoin terms. And that's yeah. awesome. Any other topics that you're really excited about kind of moving into the, you know, this next cycle? I'll tell you one that I heard that I thought was really interesting, but I want to hear your point of view. Yeah, you go first. <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. Well, when I was up at the park, we were talking about mining and lightning. And one of the ideas that somebody came up with was almost like a derivatives market for specifically closing channels, uh, the rate that you can close your channels at. So prior to basically the, the Taproot Asset Protocol creating this you know, massive fee event that's been happening on chain here for quite a while, you know, we were dealing with two sats per uh, VB as being, you could probably get into like the next couple blocks, but now it's like way high. And so if you were opening channels uh, on the Lightning Network, it would be really nice to know that you can close those for whatever price. And it seems like there may be in this coming cycle, a demand for some type of derivatives market that you know you can close a channel at a certain rate because you're protected through some type of derivative. Yeah, uh, I've spent yeah. a, ton of, a ton of time talking to the Voltage team and the Amboss team and you know some of these other Lightning businesses. And just putting it to them, what role can mining play in your business or, or in your network or in your ecosystem? And I think, there's, I think it's a huge area of untapped opportunity. I think as the market for liquidity matures, the need for robust tooling, addition, you, know, you can pay for additional certainty at channel open. I think all of those, you know, all of those are, are really interesting. You know, we talked about the pool being the, the block proposer versus the miner being the block proposer. I think, you know, having additional non-mempool native transaction agreements that go, that go into effect around Lightning or having them be transparent and open, developing an open source, you know, financial market around these types of transaction categories. Like all of that's super exciting. And I think I love being long complexity in some of these ways because... I think that the amount of, I think we undersell how much work and development has gone into what has turned our current financial system into relatively functional. And we're going to have to recreate all of that work on a different software basis. And so why is it easy to make a Venmo payment or a Zelle payment or a credit card payment? Like all of these money networks are huge businesses you know, tens of billions of dollar businesses, $100 billion businesses for, for Visa and Amex and MasterCard, you know, so I think the maintenance of an open source and permissionless and censorship resistant transaction layer, not just settlement layer, is just going to take a lot of really good engineering. And from an economic perspective, if the generators of proof of work can participate in facilitating the advancement of that transaction layer, we'd love to. Anything else you're excited about? I'm excited you're a general partner at EgoDust. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Of course, congratulations. You guys, you. Have, you guys have built a phenomenal team and you're in incredible deals and, and your proof of work is just as good as the miners. Thank you. Um, of course. You know, one of the things that came out in the Nashville Energy and Mining Summit was just around the integration with energy assets. Mm-hmm. I think we're in such early days of that. You know, for me, it feels very analogous to, you know, where Bitcoin was five or 10 years ago, where, the, you know, right now the Bitcoin network represents somewhere between 15 and 20 gigawatts of global power on a nameplate basis. You know, that's approaching 
depending on how firm those assets are, you know, between a half a percent and 1%, I think that number is going to go up a lot because not because Bitcoin miners are, you know, the parasites that we're all told they are, but because Bitcoin miners fundamentally strengthen power markets. So I'd expect nameplate install to go up, but up to go down because the need for the flexible consumer is becoming clearer and clearer. Mm -hmm. Um, And Bitcoin miners are, are able to deliver that flexibility in order of magnitude better than other industries. And so I think the integration between mining and energy generation and transmission and delivery, that's all going up because I think the folks on the energy side get it. Uh, oh, yeah. You, know, you I think, think so? For sure. That's wonderful. And, and there's a huge amount of innovation on the contracting status of those relationships. So I think of, of innovation in a number of different ways, right? Figuring out that railroads worked was a technical innovation. But at the same era, the joint stock company was another huge innovation. And that's a contractual innovation, not a technical innovation. So I think Bitcoin mining is getting the, the technical innovation down pat and the contractual innovation is going to start to happen as time goes on. So that's a, this that's coming a, cycle a or parallel theme. This yeah, coming cycle? We've seen, yeah. 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 I think, I think so. I think the need for America to build, especially America, to build more generation has never been clearer, right? We're having net inflows on a population basis, and we're going to need to build out more data center, more HPC, more manufacturing. The onshoring movement is not over after a long, you know, after a long hiatus. So I think it's obvious to me that we're going to demand more electricity in 10 years than we do today. Mm-hmm. That doesn't even take into account that, you know, we basically went from two to 22% electrification of our energy. Mm-hmm. So you can consume energy in a number of different ways. When you run your car, you're consuming energy, but also when you turn your lights on, you're consuming energy in the household. That's electricity in the car. That's combustion engine. The electrification comes with a different burden on the, the overall grid systems that power them. And so the higher the electric factor of your power system, the more specialized needs there are around how that electricity gets birthed into existence relative to how, you know, if you imagine switching your house from a propane tank to an electric heater, same jewels, different mechanism. And so I think the expansion of demand for energy is a clear and obvious trend. And the demand for electrified energy is also a clear and obvious trend. And Bitcoin mining has a role to play in both. Let's wrap up the conversation talking about nuclear with these small modular nuclear. Yeah. This is, I know your opinion on this is that this is vital to growth inside of our country, all over the world. What is the number one roadblock for this right now? Why, why is this not taking hold faster? Regulation. Okay. So walk us regulation. Through, so walk us through that. How can that be fixed? How can the education on that change? Is it an education burden or what's the just typical bureaucracy yeah. that's holding it up or what? Yeah, let, let's ground ourselves in the in the history briefly. We built 95 gigawatts of nuclear power between 1970 and the early 90s. We basically are flat because we've shuttered plants since then. Mm-hmm. So we've built a few more, we've shuttered others which is a crazy and the single most detrimental thing that we as a society have done to ourselves in recent times. Maybe not the single most, but it's too high on the list. And we basically had three mile Island happen. I forget if that was 87 or when exactly, which year it was exactly, but basically three mile Island happened. We already had a bunch that were in various stages of construction and planning. We finished those and we massively slowed down after that. And I'm a nuclear EAC versus D cell, you know, so we basically saw, we've seen an example of what happens when the D cells win and it was nuclear power from 1990 to 2016, when we started energizing the Vogel plants in Georgia, the cultural impact around why that happened is that there were really scary things that happened that were broadly televised on the news. Those events didn't really result in loss of life or environmental contamination, but they were big, scary ideas. There's a great essay by Nick Zabo that you should read relative to this idea, which is he takes a second look at Pascal's wager and he wrote a piece called Pascal's Scam, which is 
you know, if you take, you know, if, if I say there's a one in 1 billion chance that the world ends, all of a sudden I got to fight against a lot of demons, but that's a total waste of time because the chances are one in a billion. Nuclear basically fell victim to a, to Pascal's wager, but I think the nuclear decel movement was really Pascal's scam. The likelihood that bad things were going to happen based on nuclear power is infinitesimally low. It's significantly less dangerous than, than coal or oil. It's roughly on par with solar on a loss of life per terawatt hour. It's an incredibly safe technology. You know, Chernobyl was, was the example that everybody kind of points to. There were three other reactors at the Chernobyl site. All of them ran for 17 more years after the meltdown. It only impacted one of the reactors. So, you know, and there were massive internal alarms and it was really a Soviet bureaucracy problem that resulted in that, in that catastrophe, not a system failure. That system failure should have been caught significantly earlier. So unfortunately, the HBO show is, is very well made, but wildly uh, historically inaccurate. You know, we go through this chilling period. Then we wake up to, we just need to shut them down movement that took hold in Germany. It took hold in New York. Uh, you know, the loss of Indian Point is, is a, a huge travesty. And if they hadn't shut that down, I might have considered staying and not moved to Nashville. But you know, good for me. I got to get out of there where TVA operates some of the best nuclear assets in the world in our backyard. The case against them is crazy. Do I think there's an education problem? I think there's more of a generational problem than there is a, an education problem. I know lots of young people who are really excited about nuclear outside of Bitcoin. But I think there's, you know, there's a, a lot of narrative work that the Nuclear Energy Institute has done over the last 15 years to both fight against bad regulation and legislation, but also improve the quality of education around what I believe is, is the best form of generation uh, that we've discovered thus far. So I, I think, you know, we see, we see China building a, a ton of SMRs. We see Poland. We see areas of Africa that are looking to build them. And, you know, the great news is, is that four of the incredible technology companies that are building the tech to actually put an SMR into the world, those are all American companies. We should build them here. Look, I think, you know, like with many things, you need the will to win and we need to find our will to win. And a lot of that is going to be a function of how we choose to staff our nuclear regulatory commission, the NRC. That's where a lot of this friction is coming from, whether it's from a technology approval, new scale has a, an approved design, but they've been really hesitant to let any of the other designs into the wild. And then it comes down to being able to actually get a site to build one of these things, which also requires additional approval and you know, zoning, geological study, et cetera. And to be clear, I am incredibly in favor of doing an enormous amount of diligence on what technology we're willing to bring to market with you know, an active isotope, and then also what location we choose to put there. There's got to be community buy-in, but go to, go to there are 99 nuclear reactors operating in the US today. Go to one of those towns and ask them how do they feel about the plant. Huge amount of property tax revenue. It's mm. quiet. It doesn't emit anything like a coal plant does. It's clean. It's a big employer. Their power cost is low. So those communities love them. It's really just sort of the the ghost that we have put into many of our minds around what this, you know, uh oh, nuclear equals bomb. That's the, the talk track that we need to break out of and understand that what if you didn't name it nuclear? What if you named it clean, cheap power monument <laughs> instead? You know, how many of those would we want? So I think there's huge opportunity there. I'm, I'm really, really hopeful that the leadership that, that we look to today will, will understand this point of view. I think the utilities want it. I think the consumers want it. And I think, you know, the government, when they, when they think about the issue in the right way, they should want it too. I love it. Harry, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this. What do you want to, uh, people can follow you online. I know on Twitter, uh, X Twitter. or whatever we're calling it these days, Bitcoin want, Park. Yeah. We'll have a link to Bitcoin Park. What else do you want to uh, throw out there? Check us out at grid.com. We love to mine Bitcoin. If you're an energy utility, reach out and ask us about how mining can help you. Whether it's us or somebody else, I, I just want to see more miners directly integrate with their electric uh, systems because 
you know, that's how we win. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, tons of just valuable information and we just really appreciate your time for coming on today. Preston, you're the best. I appreciate you, brother. Thanks. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, be sure to follow the show on whatever podcast application you use. Just search for We Study Billionaires. The Bitcoin-specific shows come out every Wednesday, and I'd love to have you as a regular listener. If you enjoyed the show or you learned something new or you found it valuable, if you can leave a review, we would really appreciate that. And it's something that helps others find the interview in the search algorithm. So anything you can do to help out with a review, we would just greatly appreciate. And with that, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.